can be hard keeping track of all the characters in A Song of Ice and Fire, the books by George R.R. R. Martin that inspired Game of Thrones. Check out that iBooks has an exclusive version of George R.R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones called the Enhanced Editions that help you keep track of the storylines and the characters in a fun and interactive way. There's maps, there's family trees. You will never be confused again when someone reappears after a thousand pages of not being around. These books are available exclusively on iBooks, so go to apple.co slash Game of Thrones to check them out. Not available in all countries, but probably available where you live. It's a great way to read the books for the first time if you haven't, or reread them. Just get all the information you need to enjoy the thousand characters and a hundred thousand locations of George R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones. Welcome to the EW Game of Thrones weekly podcast, where we're going to be breaking down The Queen's Justice, episode three, season seven. Uh, so much happened. I'm James Hibbert. I'm here with Darren Franich. Darren, the big John and Danny meeting finally happened. What was your reaction? This is something that whether you got into the books or you've gotten into the show, this is sort of the longest promised meetup of any characters. They've been so far away from each other the whole time, literally at like opposing points of the compass. Um, I love that, like, you know, we're now at a place where Thrones can really take its time with stuff like this. Like, you know, we've talked about this. There was a time not that long ago when because there were a hundred characters, like a moment like this might be sort of condensed. Now we got that great walk up as John is sort of walking through. They are they are very proud of that sort of like bridge wall thing that they've built at uh, Dragonstone. I love that sort of conversation between him and Tyrion. That meetup by itself is already kind of cool because there's a lot of great history to focus on there. Um, but yeah, then that moment of them being in the throne room. I, I love the sort of majesty of it. And I also love the very real awkwardness of it. You know, like the fact that like, you know, this this long promised meeting happens and it immediately kind of descends into like wait so sorry what like there's an army of the dead like what are you talking about man <laughs> it was like watching a a bad first date you know they the you know you know they get to the restaurant they sit down they're like oh wow this other person it looks way better than i thought and then they actually start talking and she's you know looking for one thing and he's looking for something entirely different and he starts you know rambling about dead people and uh yeah, 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 the whole thing, uh, it was interesting because, you know, all the ways you think that this meeting could have gone, uh, you probably didn't predict, oh, they're just going to really annoy each other, which is what it, what they right, ended up doing. Right. Yeah, yeah, like, I, I loved that, like, you know, John, who obviously, John is, like, on mission, and, like, you know, you could even say that going into this, I mean, as much as, yes, he is, like, a ruler of his corner of the world now, his focus is always on, like, what's my long-term mission? Night King, Army of the Dead, they're marching, just throwing out all these words, hoping that someone will care. Meanwhile, Danny, who's been on her own journey, I loved that, like, you know, Amelia Clark, I thought, really owned that one incredible scene of her kind of saying, like, you know, here's what my life has been, like, you know, just passed around and treated like nothing. And some of that is kind of because of people who you happen to be related to, or at least who we think that you're related to. More on that in a second. Um, and I loved, I think, most of all, James, you know, one of the great things about this show that it really taps into with regards to the storytelling of George R. R. Martin, this idea that, like, these people, although they're a new generation, they're still living with this history. And, like, people who are long dead, whether it's, you know, Aegon Targaryen and the first star 
Stark to bend the knee right up to their parents' generation. Like, you know, these are not things they've forgotten about. And if anything, as much as, you know, Danny wants to say, I'm not my father's daughter, as much as John wants to say, you know, what can I learn from my father's mistakes? They are still, you know, those people's children. And I love that, like, you know, just those old rivalries that you would think these two people would not care about. They do still kind of care about them. And I, I, I love the sort of dexterous way of handling all that history while also doing what is basically, yes, a very awkward Tinder meetup between two very powerful people. <laughs> right. And I was a little, I was a little surprised to hear Danny just declare my father was an evil man and, and apologize on, on behalf of, of her house. I think it took both John by surprise and us by surprise. I also particularly like that at one point she declares, I am the last Targaryen. And she's saying that to Jon Snow and we're all like going, um, I wouldn't be so sure about that. Yeah, well, okay, so so on that note, uh, I really kind of enjoyed uh, talking about a scene that did a lot of things at once. Um, as Tyrion and Jon are kind of walking over that, what is it, like an overpass, a bridge? I don't know what we should call it. It's a cool zigzag. A lot of great stuff going on with the dragon Stairway to aesthetic. dragon heaven. A lot of great inspo from that stairway to to Dragon Heaven, um, but I, I love that kind of moment of, of John kind of saying, "Well, yada yada yada." Like you, you know, Starks always have bad luck when they come south. Well, I'm not a Stark. Dragon just swoops overhead as if to say hello to another member of the uh, Targaryen uh, of, of the uh, Targaryen bloodline. Oh yeah, that, that's a good point. That was an interesting little bit of like just kind of very clever scene setting, and, and again, an interesting reminder. You know, in an episode where it's clear that Bran and that all important knowledge of who Jon Snow is that that is kind of something that is moving closer to the surface. I just like the idea of these two characters being together. They have more in common than they might think uh, and more in common than really either of them know. So that was interesting. You know, I, I will say this was kind of an episode where it was like first meeting, we don't like each other. Second meeting, all right, we've decided to get along now. Like, you know, that arc was kind of very clear uh, very quickly, but I did like how there wasn't a sense of either of them kind of like getting exactly what they wanted out of it, which is sort of, you know, the element of a good compromise, right. I guess. Right. I, I was I was just thinking about your comment about those stairs. It's it's it, it's sort of like like the ultimate Aaron Sorkin walk and talk stairs. You know, it's like it's it's it, it's just built for like really long conversations because it takes so long to get up to that castle. I also like 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 the scene. Um, you know, picking up. I, I just rewatched uh, the pilot in the second episode, where, which had a fair amount of John and uh, Tyrion moments, and just seeing that relationship just kick right back into gear where it left off with these two uh, outsiders in their families uh, who have now had all these different various adventures and now, you know, you know, you know, come into prominence with with, with power and, uh, and and how they kind of reconnected too. Yeah, I thought that was great. I mean, again, I, I think that, you know, one of the kind of wish fulfillment elements of this season has always been this promise of these characters who either have never been together or have not been together for a very long time now getting to kind of get together and talk about it a little bit. On the Tyrion and Jon aspect, I just liked a lot that you know, the conversation between them later when Jon Snow is kind of off brooding, looking great brooding as only Jon Snow can. Um, you know, I, I like that, you know, 
Tyrion, however focused he is on Danny and on like, you know, making sure that like, you know, she can ultimately is in charge. There is this interesting sort of narrative crossover here where it's like, okay, like, yes, we are focused on Cersei. And yes, like, I'm even focused on my own personal kind of family vengeance. But I hear what you're saying, John. And like, I will be the person who is like, yes, like, what can we do to ensure that this whole army of the dead thing reaches some kind of happy resolution? Um, and so, yeah, now they get to mine Dragonstone. Now I assume we're going to get a whole season of just like people slowly mining for Dragonstone. <laughs> it's going to be a, a fun look at the a Dragonglass mining operation. <laughs> Actually, you know, given the pace of the season, I expect next episode to open with like all the Dragonglass mined. And, you know, it's like, I know, John, this is what we said. John is like suddenly at Dragonstone already. It's like, whoa, oh my God. Like we are really, I find that interesting because like, you know, this season, I, I think that it's been playing this, this very wise game of like, you know, the time time kind of passes very quickly and it's clear like you know weeks have kind of passed i was intrigued though that there was a rare kind of time stamp that occurred in this episode where cersei kind of told taicho or taiko or you know whatever uh, mycroft's name is um you know like <laughs> told him like you know you know stick around for a fortnight and see what happens and i was kind of like oh boy like this is going to be it and and an especially active fortnight of activity here at king's landing <laughs> an especially active <laughs> fortnight is the subtitle for the season um <laughs> Let's see, do we w want to go over to uh, King's Landing or do we have more to say on this one? One last thing on, on Dragonstone. Melisander got uh, the most kind of load-bearing line of the night. I have brought ice and fire together. I was really <laughs> hoping, I was really hoping, James, she was going to say, I have brought ice and fire together and now they shall sing their song. Didn't get there. We'll get there soon. Um, but just a great little moment between, you know, to talk about uh, this is an episode where two characters who are now very much in charge and very heroic figures had an interaction. I love that we kind of resettle ourselves with Melisander and Varys, these two people who are decidedly not royals, who found themselves allied to different royals over the course of the show. Just a great little bit of minor prophesizing. Her saying, like, well, I'm, I'm heading back to Volantis, but it's my destiny to die in this strange country, and that's your destiny too, Varys. I thought that was just like a great little moment between those two characters who, after all, have probably lasted longer than most kings and queens uh, will ever last on the Iron Throne. Well, it's also <laughs> such a psych outline, you know? You know, and uh, Varys tries to to threaten her, and she's like, "Oh, oh no! You you want to hear a threat? How about this one?" And uh, where it's like, <laughs> "I know how you die," kind of threat, and you don't even know. I mean, I mean, for all we know, she could be just totally making that up, you know, just to mess with him right. because it really right. did throw Varys. And uh, you know, behind the scenes, a uh, uh, fun fact: Chris uh, Van Houten was actually pregnant, very pregnant during that scene. So so they have her like bundled up in in these in these robes. And, uh, so that, that oh, was, that was, that, that was one reason why, uh, she doesn't have uh, much of a presence as much of a presence as you might expect this season. Just going to head off to Volantis. And then the way that the show moves now should be in Volantis by the beginning of the next episode and then back in Westeros by the end. <laughs> um, James, uh, let's, let's shift over to the mainland, uh, King's Landing. Uh, <laughs> I loved, again, I really do think the showrunners hate the Greyjoys, which is totally fine. A lot of people do. I love that Euron got the line, like, listen to them. They're cheering for a Greyjoy. Like, this is the strangest thing that has ever happened in King's Landing. People are actually happy to see one of the sourpusses from the Iron Islands <laughs> coming into town. Um, James, you had uh, such a great uh, write-up on, you know, the scene of the episode that was somehow super disturbing 
disturbing, even though it was ultimately not that violent. But the moment between Ilaria and Cersei and just the tremendous like tension that was created there, the tremendous sense of like really anything could happen. We've seen a lot of bad stuff happen to characters on this show. Like what is the worst? Um, I, I really felt like the punishment that Cersei came up with was like eighth level of hell, like you know, brilliant. <laughs> like just what an awful like, you know, life to sort of curse one of your, one of your enemies right. to. How did you kind of feel about, and you know, people should read uh, the write-up. Uh, uh, you spoke to the actress who, who plays Ilaria. That's the end of her on the show, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, I don't think, I didn't really, I, I had not really picked up on that from the episode. That's fascinating. Yeah. What a fascinating place to leave her. Yeah, yeah, and uh, <laughs> yeah, the actress uh, who, of course, we also know for, from Rome, uh, Indira Varma, did such a great job in that scene, despite you know, no dialogue, you know, she obviously was, was gagged. She couldn't speak. And it's interesting what you say about the violence, because you're right. You know, not only was there no, there's actually no violence in that scene and there was only a kiss, you know? So it was, it was this kind of, uh, this very, uh, you know, for game of Thrones, you know, a show that can be so violent and, and, and bloody, it, it was all psychological torture in, in a sense. And, uh, and I love that Cersei sounds like she like sat at a desk with like a yellow legal pad and just like tried to like figure out exactly how, how to pull us off. And is even going like, wait, but what, what if one of the torches runs out? Wait, that would be bad because then she wouldn't be able to see. So we got to make sure the torches and what if she, she refuses to eat? You know, how are we going to handle that? You know, so it, it, it sort of felt like she really tried to think through every possible way that this could not be maximum horror for for her victim. James, it's actually, uh, you know, in the courtyard next to where she had them paint that big map of Westeros. She has her courtyard that's just all charts and graphs of like, you know, torture, <laughs> like, you know, ratio of sadness to like length of life. Like, yeah, like I some mean, big Silicon you know, Valley, I, 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 like, 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 like sort of whiteboard of, 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 of torture, <laughs> you know. I mean, you know, because again, I mean, you know, just to think about the history going into this episode, that gut-wrenching moment of Ilaria seeing the mountain again or seeing the horror that the mountain has become, knowing just how that there's that residual pain of like what that monstrosity did to her lover and just being back in this position now. I mean, you know, this is fair to say probably the end of like the Dornish uh, phase of the show. And I just thought like, you know, to end on that, like just brutal, you know, cask of Amontillado, like, ambiguity was something that I thought was really, really heart-wrenching and sad. I mean, it, it does make me think, like, if that is the end of her, that then it gets me wondering, like, what does that mean for, like, King's Landing, that, like, in the long term of the show, she'll just be there, but no one's gonna find her. I sort of hold out hope that we'll just have, like, a single shot in the second-to-last episode of the show where whoever has conquered King's Landing is just kind of going through the prison, and you just see, like, you know, some poor mad woman her hair turned white and like a you know decomposing corpse of a sand snake across from her but really horrifying stuff dark um, darren what did you think james i like to go dark listen I, I watch this show and twin peaks every sunday i'm in a weird place on on monday morning um but uh, james i do want to ask the one interesting bit of kind of strategy setting that we got here in king's landing this seems to really affirm that euron and cersei are like in it for the long term her sort of promise to him that he'll get what he wants after the war is over well, I, I, I thought that was kind of interesting i mean yeah, we'll, we'll i mean, we'll I mean do we really trust cersei to like keep her promise i mean yeah yeah she she did the old yes you will get exactly what you want 
after we win the war. So she's right, she's right, clearly right, not right. in a hurry to to go ahead and fulfill that promise. I actually found, you know, to me, one of the scenes I was I was most struck by was the scene of Cersei and Jamie in bed the next morning. That is such a standard shot of couples this sort of low-key oh we just woke up together in bed but it's it's something that we just never imagined for these two because it because it's so yeah. normal and there were such these crazy iconic violent characters you you don't really picture them having sleep in snuggle time the morning after some incest sex you just don't picture that and 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 so just that shot of them like it, in Bedeguer was was something that is so normal on other shows, but just felt so interesting and striking on this show, and it led into obviously the you know the scene we have uh, later in High High Garden. It helps set that up. Yeah, I mean. You're right, James. And, you know, you're going to get something that I was really thinking to myself in this episode, which is like, you know, again, I come at all this stuff with a lot of knowledge from the books. In book four, especially when Cersei is kind of most in charge, or at least the most in charge that we've seen her in, in Martin's telling of the story. Um, she's like a full decadent Caligula, end of Rome type of ruler who just seems to be like maybe not built for the kind of authority that, that she has. I'm intrigued by the problem that she actually seems like she's pretty good at this as far as managing people, figuring out strategy. She's got a good guy in charge of her navy. Well, not a, not a good guy. She has a good commander in charge of her navy, a, a good commander in charge of her army. And on top of everything else, maybe King's Landing is a little more chill under her. Like, she's like, yeah, like, also people that were, like, living together in an, in an incestuous relationship, who cares? It's like, all right, well, you know, I, I may not necessarily support everything that you're doing here, Cersei, but you're definitely living your truth she's living her truth james yeah. and we cannot uh, deny her yeah that. i mean this this is uh cersei really living her dream life you know she's crushing enemies in in battle she's torturing people she's fooling around with her brother and doesn't care if anyone knows i mean this, this is this is what she's always kind of aspired to be this is truly peak cersei i'm, I'm I, I suspect life doesn't get any better for her character yeah i think that's definitely true um i sort of mentioned this earlier but the other great bit of kind of strategy setting here. She takes a meeting from Bravos. I love what they've done on the show with Bravos and with the character Tycho Nestoris, uh, played by the great Mark Gatiss. Um, I just, I love that like Cersei was kind of talking to him about how is, how is the bank doing and these setbacks you've had. They're kind of saying they like to kind of like invest in people. Uh, my, my, my fiance at that point turned to me and said, so they're kind of a VC firm, which is kind of <laughs> accurate actually. Yeah, like I love I mean, the show has never really had to do too much with Bravos, but I love the kind of role that they serve of just sort of coming in and speaking to these rulers and having some kind of overall role in like what Westeros is going to look like, even though they themselves are not on Westeros. Definitely thought that Cersei made it made a pretty good pitch to him. Like uh, certainly a better pitch than I would have thought that uh, she could have made. Yeah. Uh, you know, two two episodes ago when she had enemies uh, surrounding her on all sides. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. You said that that thing about how the rule uh, might be a little more chill under Cersei. And I was thinking while watching this episode, you know, there's an argument to be made that it doesn't matter all that much who is on that iron throne in terms of the of right. the average person in in Westeros. I mean there's there there's an argument to be made especially, you know, if you sort of discount the white walkers which we shouldn't of course. But but uh <laughs> but but that all all these battles for who's going to be on the iron throne 
is far worse for everybody living in Westeros than if any given one of them ended up on it. So, I right. mean, we think of, of Cersei as this bad person, but arguably Cersei on the Iron Throne is is better for your average person living there than Danny if it means having this massive battle where like thousands of people are killed first. You're listening to Game of Thrones Weekly. Game, Game of, of Thrones, Thrones Weekly. Weekly. Speaking of debating house lineages, a quick word about our sponsor, iBooks. They have these Game of Thrones enhanced editions of George R.R. Martin's novels that help you keep track of the storylines and the characters in a fun and interactive way. Now, in the books, John and Danny haven't met yet, but in the iBooks versions, they have these interactive lineages where you can pull up the Targaryen and Stark houses and look at who is related to who. And I particularly like that under Daenerys, uh, her family tree branches off to show that she has three children, which are, of course, her dragons. These books are available exclusively on iBooks. Go to apple.co slash Game of Thrones to check them out. They're not available in all countries, but they are available likely where you live. Like, for instance, it, you might be out of luck if you live north of the wall, but not if you live in King's Landing. Anyway, back to the episode. Did you kind of catch, again, just to talk about like a random little throwaway thing that I found very interesting, Cersei sort of was openly describing what happened at the Sept of Baelor as an accident. And it was clear to me, like, okay, so the official messaging on this, you know, the the, the story that the, that the players over in Essos will be performing about that is that it was some tragic accident. Maybe even you spin it as like, you know, ah, it's so sad. It was like, you know, this wildfire left over from the Mad King. We don't know who said it off, you know, tragic loss of like, you know, beloved Queen Marjorie and tragic loss of my son who committed suicide. So now she's almost kind of this person who stepped up and been like, hey, everybody, like, don't worry. I, it made me wonder if that's kind of why people in King's Landing seem kind of OK with her, that like she is almost this person who stepped up in the midst of a disaster and is now kind of creating at least some semblance of order. So I found that just an interesting bit of throwaway. I had assumed that she had sort of like told everybody in King's Landing, I blew them up and I'll blow up anybody who who crosses me. So interesting. Again, we're sort of seeing more of how she rules, and I feel like she has learned a lot from Tywin Lannister uh, in, in a way that uh, perhaps her brothers could stand to learn more. <laughs> uh, we also, and this is a segue, um, saw another woman doing uh, good managerial duties over in Winterfell when we saw saw Sansa, you know, you know, figuring out what they needed because winter is coming. That That's like the one thing that Stark should know how to do. It's like manage winter. It's, 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 it's like... It's like I, 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 I would hope and pray that 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 any Stark in charge of of Winterfell would be good at uh, winter preparation management. And uh, so so and, and we also hear Littlefinger purring in her ear, you know, all sorts of of paranoid, you know, multiverse, you know, sort of uh, thoughts that sound both toxic and useful at the same time. Yeah, I I have never so badly wished for a podcast crossover. I so want to hear what Jeff Jensen thinks about that line that Littlefinger had, where he says, imagine that every possible series of events is happening all at once. In that moment, I was just like, wait a second. Are we, is this like Mr. Robot stuff here? Like Littlefinger, are you able to kind of like foresee all possible eventualities. Just love that, you know, great, great, great work by both actors there. I just feel like the dynamic between those two characters is still so compelling. There is this weird chemistry, even though it's very clear that some 
point, one or both of them might kill each other. Like, I just, I love that. And to your point, yeah, I feel like there was something very autobiographical there for the creators of this show. They have to be so micro-focused. And I loved Sansa just sort of walking through uh, where, where the blacksmiths were, being like, why isn't there leather on there? Just great, great little notices of what kind of a leader she is uh, versus what kind of leader some of the other people on the show are. Right. And then, of course, we get the surprise of somebody at the gate, and we think, of course, it's Arya, and it turns out it's Bran, because we always forget about the Stark that that remembers everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I thought I kind of thought they were going to say, hey, Sansa, um, there's a seven and a half foot tall man here uh, <laughs> who says he's your little brother, Bran. He's he's about four feet taller than Bran was when he left. Um, again, thinking about this season of just like people meeting up with each other for the first time or for the first time in a long time. What these two have been through is great. I just loved and full credit to Sophie Turner here. Her confusion about the three-eyed raven stuff so perfectly reflects terrific. our yes. confusion. Yeah. Wait, I thought you were the three-eyed raven. There's a three-eyed raven. It's were, like, look. I thought you were the three-eyed raven. Look, Santa, nobody really understands this, including possibly the writers of Game of Thrones. So let's just kind of skip past that and get to the next beat in our narrative. Are you kind of horrified, James? Like Bran and the way that he kind of acts now. Yeah. Like he's speaking of Mr. Robot. He's so like a robot. He's so that guy on, on every episode of Star Trek where somebody gets the god power and then just becomes inhuman. Like, I just found that. I mean, all this taking place right next to the old trees with the faces on them. So much has happened in that place. I mean, again, the fact that he just sort of calls up her wedding night, the worst night of her life amidst right. a series of worst years right. of her life. It was just so, so cold. And again, thinking about like an episode of people meeting each other and you're just like, oh, can't you just hug and be nice? Nope. That's, that's not how it's going to go down. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's, I mean, clearly changed the most of all of them. And for, for Sansa, it's, it's, it's tragic because, you know, she lost him once he comes back and she realizes, no, he's not really back. And he is, in a way, gone forever. But but yeah, Bran needs to to just stop, you know, spying on people in their bedrooms. It, you know, it, it, <laughs> it caused a lot of disaster for for him in, in in the pilot. And now he's like, oh yeah, hey, yeah, that 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 Ramsey, that 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 was pretty brutal, right? It's like you know, pick another thing to like search through space and time to watch. Don't use it as your own personal peep show. Game of Thrones is first and foremost a show about the danger of being a peeping Tom. You would think that Bran would have learned that. He has not learned that yet. Um, just before we leave Winterfell completely, James, I would just say, interesting that we get Sansa kind of saying, like, you're the last true-born son of Ned Stark, which brings with it certain bloodline privileges. I'm never quite sure how deeply to interpret the appearance of a rift between Sansa and Jon. But given that Bran is bringing information that is not only, not only is Jon Snow not the son of Ned Stark, but he is the son of a certain family line that nobody up in the North likes. I'm just, I'm always, I'm always intrigued to see like if that's going to play out in some larger way in the future. We'll see. Um, let's shift down, James. Uh, got to see Casterly Rock. That was cool. 
First yeah. time you ever saw that place. I, I, um, I know. I mean, we, we've been hearing about it since I, I think from like the first episode, and uh, but uh, never actually seen it. And we got to hear uh, Tyrion narrate his 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 amazing battle plan. That and he, and he has a sort of total smug tone as as he talks about exactly how he's he's figured out how to who penetrate the the impenetrable fortress of the Rock. And of course, it uh, all goes to hell because Jamie Lannister learned a thing or two from uh, being captured by uh, Rob Stark uh, back in the day, back in the Battle of Whispering Woods. So they get there and surprise, uh, there's no one there. Yeah, your description of Tyrion. I really thought they could have used the Ocean's Eleven soundtrack in the background as he was sort of narrating this sort of like very heist-style entrance uh, into Casterly Rock. I just thought, to think of the strategy here, I love the idea that the Lannisters are so hardcore, they don't even really care about their ancestral home anymore. That is sort of like this final kind of trap to lay. But Jamie has that great line. Like, actually, Casterly Rock isn't really worth anything to us. Just thinking about them versus the Starks where the Starks just will do anything for Winterfell. They will bleed to make sure that Winterfell is like kept safe and ultimately like the Lannisters are just perhaps understandably they kind of run King's Landing now. But what does have value is Highgarden and the Lannisters need money and they're always you know have one eye on on paying their debts so it was both tactically uh, in terms of, of battle strategy, but but also quite pragmatic to go and seize Highgarden, uh, which they did at the end there. Yeah, I, I thought, James, you had a great kind of write-up where you talked to a lot of folks about uh, the end of Olena Tyrell. This is a character who I just think has lived so far beyond the show in such a big way. Um, it's been so great having Diana Rigg on the show. I mean, she's just such an incredible actress. And, you know, you, you can go back to her work on The Avengers and in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Seeing her in this show ultimately become just such a powerful force. Like, I'm now kind of tearing up recalling her lines to Danny last week, realizing that those were really kind of like her last great legacy, perhaps, sort of teaching. Danny something about how she managed to last so long and just that scene between her and Jamie was incredible like I love that like you know, you didn't even really need to see that battle just you know her lines to Jamie like how did we do like oh like about as well as, as, as could be expected and I loved this is a point someone makes in your write up James that she kind of won somehow like she's the first person to win her own death scene which I think is such a remarkable note to sort of wrap that character up on yeah yeah Game of Thrones showrunner Dan Weiss actually Actually, uh, said that in the story that uh, yeah she's she's probably the only Game of Thrones character to win their own death scene by making that confession at the end. I mean she's pragmatic, you know. She makes she once she realizes that okay yes uh, she's gonna die and B it's gonna be a poison that's not painless. You know she gulps it down and then you know then she's like okay now I'm gonna lower the boom and you know and that really shocks Jamie because you know Jamie sort of regarded them as sort of these. These sort of victims of uh, of Cersei's own uh, paranoid grudge uh, against that family, and they got on the wrong side of things, and you know they had to do what they had to do. Uh, he didn't realize that they basically drew first blood and killed his son. You know, so yeah. he's, he's he's pretty stud there. But what I also really liked in that in that scene, I, I think, is probably might be the most important thing, is her planting these seeds about how. Uh, Cersei will lead to his ruin. And she's pretending in that moment that she's totally given up. But 
she hasn't. And she hasn't given up on winning because she's trying to lay that groundwork, both with that, you know, so, so the comment at the end is, is, is the obvious way she stabbed back at Cersei. But the less obvious way is the way she tried to undermine uh, their relationship in a way that she, I'm, I'm sure, hopes will manifest at some point. Yeah, you're so right. I hadn't even really thought about that, but the gamesmanship that she is endeavoring to perform in her final moments, so brilliantly incisive and gets into something that's interesting. Jamie as a character now, I think is hard to keep track of because it does seem sometimes like he's just, he's almost kind of in this sort of fatalist, like Beowulf era where he's just... I know who I'm with. It's my sister. I know she's probably like not going to be good for me in the end, but like, I'm just, I'm here. Like this is the person that I showed up to the dance with. And like, I'm here until, you know, the blood pours onto Carrie and we all die. And I just, I find that interesting. I mean, it does, you know, it gives me a, a sort of lack of hope for him as someone who might last into his old age, but it does give me hope that like maybe what Olena is saying will kind of like turn some kind of key in your brain. But we'll see. But again, Cersei's doing better at this whole queen thing than anybody else is right now, at least as far as like basic battlefield strategy goes. <laughs> you know, and with that, uh, with that warning that that uh, Elena gave Jamie, you, you sort of also think about the comment that uh, Melisandre made to Varys. And it seems like that there's like two, at least two, <laughs> there's probably more. These episodes are so dense, you know, uh, moments of what sounds like foreshadowing. You know, that, you know, that sounds like characters, you know, either through magic or just psychology, making a prediction about, you know, you know, here's, here's my final season prediction, you know, you know, says, says Elena and, and Melisandre, you know, and obviously the showrunners know exactly what they're doing in the final season. And so you, you, you listen to that and you go, okay. Are they telling us what's going to happen? Are is this a red herring? You know, yeah. what do you what do you sort of believe in terms of what that means for what's to come? Um, let's just quickly wrap up uh, way down at the bottom of the map. Um, Jora got some scars, but all in all, looking pretty good. The plan to pull off all the grayscale and cover it in ointment, big success. Um, fair to say he's probably going to try to find his way back to his queen. I uh, would love to know what kind of strategy advice he might be able to give her at this point, as yeah. as every other part of her super brilliant strategy has sort of come unwound, uh, mainly due to Euron Greyjoy. I was surprised by how much I was moved by just that scene of Sam kind of talking to Jorah. And again, thinking about how history comes up for each of these characters, you know, the fact that his father knew Sam and wh- what that kind of means for the both of them. It's something that I, I, th- I thought there was just like some great little elements to kind of play around with there with two characters who may not ultimately like, you know, meet up ever again. Like they're, they're kind of going to opposite points of uh, the map as far as we can tell. Yeah. I also, the, the part that moved me actually was the stern archmaster uh, telling Sam, you should be very proud because, n- because nobody in like parental authority positions, you know, hardly ever have, have given him any praise uh, all, all this time. And and he's obviously the Archmaster obviously has been giving him a, a quite a hard time. And so just, just just for him to get that pat on the back uh, from him uh, just made me go, oh, and also I think what might be my favorite line of the episode is I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but it's basically like, you know, I read the instructions and I followed them. <laughs> <laughs> 
very straightforward. Sam is a straight shooter. That's one thing that we know about him. Uh, James, uh, any other thoughts on the episode uh, as we go into... God, we only have four episodes left now. These th- these freaking short seasons of television are, are, are really starting to kill me. <laughs> I guess I would say that, you know, Danny showed up in Westeros, you know, two armies, three dragons, you know, a fleet of ships, and we just thought that Cersei was going to be completely crushed. And now we're three episodes in, and Cersei is the one who's doing the crushing. And we had this little hint of at the uh, in the episode of Danny, uh, her her patience uh, of trying to do this the, the 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 tactful way might be gone. She's ready to release the dragons, and we know that whenever she gets really put in a corner, uh, she, you know she you know turns off her mercy and just goes uh, goes pretty hardcore Targaryen. So uh, you know if that happens, I'm looking forward to seeing that. Yeah, I, I did like the idea that, you know, she's kind of saying like, uh, you know, I could just like take these dragons and start burning things. They're like, no, 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 Khaleesi. Like, no, 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 queen. Like, it's a bad idea. I was like, I don't know, guys. Sometimes the, the best strategy is the most straightforward one. Like, the, the, the dragons aren't doing you any good just sort of like flying over Dragonstone looking for secret Targaryens, you know? <laughs> so we'll see how that turns out. Um I think it's time for the trivia section of our show, the most exciting part of the show. This week's trivia prize is a you're a dragon, be a dragon woman's t-shirt. Ugh, R.I.P. Olena. Gone but not forgotten. Um, this week's trivia question, we, we heard a little bit about Volantis this week. Volantis, a pretty hip corner of the world. That's where the red woman is heading off to for the foreseeable future. You know, she'll be back at some point. Has to die in this strange country. Who was the first character to talk about their memories of Volantis? This person was from Volantis? And maybe there was somebody earlier who was like some random like wine cellar or something. We're looking for a named Oh, character. I know this one. You do? Oh great! So. Well, well, good. Okay, well, well, that means there's an actual answer to it, which is always, which is always helpful. <laughs> um, let us know. Email your answers to gotpodcast at ew.com. If you get the answer, you may be the lucky one person to win that T-shirt. I'm gonna, I'm gonna send in the answer because I'd love to get that T-shirt. Also, just email us if you have any like fun thoughts about the show. We love to hear your fun thoughts. We have fun thoughts to share. And if you want to chat at us, he's at James Hibbard. I'm at Darren Franich. Hey, while you're at it, if you like this show as much as we like Game of Thrones, let us know about it. Go on Apple Podcasts. Give us a rate. Give us a review. Let us know what you think. And uh, we'll be back same time next Monday, a mere 13 James Hibbard Game of Thrones posts away from the next episode of EW's Game of Thrones Weekly. Guys, we just threw a lot of information at you about Game of Thrones, but remember the best way to just dive deep into the world of Game of Thrones is to read the books by George R.R. Martin. And guess what? iBooks has an exclusive version of George R.R. Martin's Game of Thrones called the Enhanced Editions that help you keep track of all the storylines and all the characters in a fun and interactive way across all the books. If there's a new character, you click on his name, see what his family tree is. If it's a character you haven't seen in a while, get reintroduced to him. There's interactive 
interactive maps. What a great series of interactive maps this world has created. These books are available exclusively on iBooks. So go to apple.co slash Game of Thrones to check them out. They're not available in all countries, but they're probably available where you live. It's just a great way to fully experience the panoramic scope of the world that George R.R. R. Martin created. 